1: Dropping by the studio is Chris Rupke, MUFG, Union Bank Chief Financial Economist and Managing Director. Good morning to you, Chris. Good morning. So a slowdown in China, implementing lending quotas, commodities breaking down, the Federal Reserve does not look like it's for turning right now. What do you make of all of this put together?
2: Well, I was uh, pretty happy last night, right? I mean, the Dow was up 6% year to date. The max it was uh, a month ago was up 8.5%. So we climbed back. I was up in the... Black Again, up 6% year to date. It was only 8.5% year to date. And now what happened? The market uh, went pear-shaped, got a little wobbly overnight. You have know, something to do with China, as you say. I, I don't know how this happened. But what, it's we're do only think? down. To to, yeah, I we're we're kind of used I to th- the th- new volatility. I don't want to
1: make too much of this morning's yeah. moves. I want to have a look at what is happening in China specifically. Mm-hmm. There is a deceleration taking place. Is it made in China or made in America?
2: Uh, I, I think uh, the, the tariffs are having an, an, an impact, and um, you know we're not all there yet, right? I mean, the the final 200 billion of tariffs has a 10% is at 10% now. January one, it goes to 25%. That's nine night, night and day different. Uh, when we put the tariffs up to 25%, that's going to cause a major change in uh, some of these import-export patterns. So, you know, the trade war is always interesting from the U.S. standpoint. For a trade war, and the IMF's warning about it, but for a trade war like 1929, you need trade volume to go down. But imports and exports to China this year... Vis a vis US are up 8%, 9%. Yeah. So it's going the wrong way. It should I, be, I really. It should be falling
1: 20%, Chris, not going up 8%. I hate the 1920s, 1930s comparison. Well, you weren't there. Was it was pretty there. bad. And uh, neither were you, Chris, I'm oh, sure. Right. But it was terrible looking at the history books, but the comparisons just don't make sense at all to me at least i look at the deceleration in china and i see signs of desperation now yeah the chinese implementing lending quotas that we've learned in the last 24 hours so now large banks will need to have a third of new corporate loans to private companies smaller medium banks will need to have two-thirds of new loans will have to go on the corporate side will have to go to non-state entities at the moment loans to non-state corporates currently are less than a quarter of the total these are gonna to have to be some big moves by Chinese banks to get extra loans to private entities that's a recipe for trouble isn't it yeah it doesn't look great I mean
2: it does um, part of me kind of says that you know their GDP numbers there are interesting re- interesting remember back in 2016 we thought China's economy was going down and they, they said, no, real GDP is running 6.5%, and that's our target over the next five years. Now, at, at the worst, I think IMF has 6.2%, uh, China growth slowing from 6.5% roughly to 6.2% next year. Uh, that doesn't sound like it's all that dramatic, right, in, in – I mean – Going from six and a yeah. half to 6.2. The the worry is it's going to be much, much worse, of course. So we'll have to see what happens. Uh, you know, Trump before uh, the midterms was saying maybe he can yeah. get some agreement. So th- that's the key, whether the, some of these tariffs can be taken off the track they're on.
0: The 20s and the 30s. John was all upset about the 20s. And th- what was the worst year in the 20s and the 30s? 1927. The Yankees played 7-14 baseballs. <laughs> that had to be a baseball well, reference. <laughs> well understood to be one of the best teams in the history of all of sports. They went 18-4 and four against the Red Sox, who enjoyed last place. The Red Sox played, John, what we call three thirty one ball. They won 51 games and lost 103 games. That was the worst year in the twenties and the thirties. That's
2: one of the causes of the Great Depression. That it is. The,
0: it was the bad a major years cause. For
1: Tom Keen back in the day.
2: Loss um, of confidence. Bernanke
0: reminded me of that in our last conversation. Oh uh, gosh. Is 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 well, Chris Rupke, When you look at China, when you look at these dynamics, I noticed this week very quietly. John Burrett in all the Washington headlines and all that, was imports from China into America. What do we exactly import from China? into america is that a is that an internal dynamic of manufacturing and services or is it is it something simpler than that
2: yeah i mean it's a lot of consumer goods and it's a lot of capital goods so the, those, those capital goods are going into the supply chain here that's what it's never made sense to me because i remember the trade wars we had with japan you know, I'm at MUFG Bank. The trade wars that we had with Japan in in the late '80s, it, it was night and day different, right? Yes. There were cars coming from Japan Toyota, was Toyota to yeah, to yeah. the U.S. So it was kind of like U.S. <clears throat> versus Japan. Now this is trying to be like U.S. against China, the country, but it's really U.S. manufacturers. Right. We're battling with ourselves.
0: U.S. companies have done this. This is one of the most important insights, John, The we I mean, we've been doing politics 24-7, and I get it all, you know. Yeah. The news flow's been extraordinary. But what Mr. Rupke just said there is incredibly important. We're fighting the emotional war of the Japanese trade battle of years ago. It's not. It's different this time.
1: It is different this time, but I will say, I think we've got to stop viewing the global economy through the prism almost exclusively of U.S. policy. You would say that. Trade, monetary policy, <laughs> yeah. fiscal policy. Yeah. I would say that, he Chris. Gets, I don't he, even know he what that. Gets means. Ornery on <laughs> Look at what is happening in China right now that has nothing to do with trade. One fifth yeah, one fifth of China's housing is empty. Let me say it again. One fifth of mm-hmm. China's housing is empty. This has nothing to do with a trade war. They have a real problem of over capacity. They have a real problem with decelerating growth in the country. Everybody can agree on that. The thing nobody can agree on is when the pain is gonna start because they keep finding a way to put this off, to put this off. And I think the reason some people are worried this morning is because they wake up this morning and see a government that's trying to introduce lending quotas Mm -hmm. because they're trying to play the game again. They're trying to boost credit. And keep the party, keep the music going. There are serious problems in this economy that have nothing to do with trade disputes, Chris.
2: Yeah, but I, yeah, I mean, but part of it is it. It still is very much when I was over there. Uh, it's a developing nation. I mean, it's 1.4 billion people. Uh, the the amount of talk about income inequality. We're talking about income inequality with Tom. I mean, income inequality in China is unbelievable right I mean there's very very few people when when I was over there I didn't meet meet that many people who who owned a home right I mean they can't afford it the incomes aren't there so well, there's 50 it's million a, apartments it's a very go. complex society and I think we kind of generalize sometimes I don't I mean there's still people coming from the rural areas to the cities that they're building yeah. it's very complicated so I don't know it, how much in trouble their economy is no.
0: My offspring cash is living over there. Yeah. he's got like three units. He bought Vet Bill a unit. So wait a sec.
1: You've got Afterthought, which is the youngest. Yeah, Andrew cash Alders flows is called cash flow. Cash
0: flow. He squeezed four years into five. That is beautiful. In
1: college. You've named pretty much every one of your kids. Named him.
0: I mean, it's his middle name, but we don't use his formal. There we name, go.
1: You know. Lovely, Chris. Thanks for dropping by. <clears clears> Thank <throat> you, Chris Rubke, MUFG Bank Chief but, uh, Financial Economist.
0: You to bring in our next guest, truly esteemed here as the president travels to, uh, uh, to Paris in uh, the commemoration of the 100th anniversary of World War I. But I would just say, John, that if I've read in all my readings and all my interviews, there is forever a distance of America from these great 20th century wars. It's something I know you grew up in Coventry with the blitz of World War II, in and, and Coventry and oh, they even back that to city. World War I. Yeah,
1: they totally flattened yeah. it. A very, very different looking city now.
0: But we should mention for our American audience, a manufacturing heart of the United yeah, Kingdom.
1: It, formally, um, yeah, um not so much anymore, and a very different looking city um, than what it looked like before the war, that's for sure. I can see why you've um, got me to introduce Stuart because it's the longest title I've ever read. Um, Stuart Patrick, <coughs> CFR Senior Fellow in Global Governance and Director of the International Institutions and Global Governance Program. There we go. Did I do okay? Yeah, you did well, Perfect. Good morning to you, Stuart. (laughs) Important weekend for so many reasons. What are you looking for this weekend?
3: Well, what I'm looking for is um, obviously there's going to be the the gathering of world leaders, uh, including uh, uh, Donald Trump in Paris at the Arc de Triomphe on Sunday, uh, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, basically commemorating uh, Armistice Day, um, the the alleged war to end all wars, where uh, the president is obviously going to be memorializing the more than 100,000 American troops that died there. Many fewer obviously than died in your own country, uh, more than seven hundred thousand. I believe yeah. um, uh, Brits died huge proportion and uh, and and the memory and the resonance and the gravity of the, of that conflict in instill in the the memory of of people who's who remember their parents mm-hmm. talking about it, et cetera uh, in Europe is huge. But it's also a time to reflect on the fact that a lot of the forces that were unleashed during uh, the Second World, uh, First World War, and its immediate aftermath, are really, really have echoes in our current day. And um, that's why President Emmanuel Macron is hosting uh, what he calls the Paris Peace Forum during that time to try to to counteract this: the rising nationalism, rising authoritarianism, and uh, and rising protectionism around the world.
1: And a really interesting story with hegemonic power. Those two wars marked the decline of British hegemonic power and the uprising of American hege- hegemonic power and for a long, long time we talked about what would happen with American hegemony. I don't think many people thought that America would withdraw from its role voluntarily. Absolutely. I, is that what is happening right now?
3: Absolutely. Um, a colleague of mine, uh, Jim Lindsay, uh, with Eva, another uh, writer, Evo Dalter, have just written a book called uh, um, uh, the, the, the Empty Throne, um, The American Abdication of World Leadership. And that's it, precisely what's happened. You know, Normally when you have these sort of power transitions, you have one power overtaking another, sometimes defeating it in war, sometimes sort of graciously passing the baton, as, as in a sense Britain did to the United States. Here you have... Instead, a country that still is, by all measures, the most powerful in the world, in a sense, abdicating its role, and that's why the the, Vers, the, uh, the Versailles, the, the 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 Paris Peace Conference era is so um, appropriate right now to think about, because that was a time when the United States had a chance to join the League of Nations that President Woodrow Wilson had had created, but instead, in a sense. The United States decided to absent itself in many ways during interwar years from, from any effort to try to have machinery to organize the peace.
1: I see this trend in the United Kingdom as well. Um, right. Many people can identify with this across various countries in Europe. Is this a consequence of populism in America that many people in the electorate no, no longer want America to have this role on the international stage?
3: I think there's a huge amount of exhaustion. I think when you look, I think the vast majority of Americans remain internationalists There's a bunch of uh, recent uh, opinion polling, very comprehensive from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, that is... That is uh, uh, testified to that. However, I think a lot of Americans uh, think that the United States has, for a long time, done more than its fair share, and they also equate sort of the promotion of democracy with unending mm-hmm. nation-building exercises around the world. So the Amer- Americans are exhausted, and so there's a sense that others, and Donald Trump has picked up on this, that others are free-riding on, right. uh, on American efforts.
0: Stuart Patrick with this with the Council on Foreign Relations, just terrific perspective out of Stanford and Oxford, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, and of course his work uh as uh, is, is well on sovereignty uh, has been important. There's been technology. I'll go back to the American Civil War. we struggled with it there. Certainly in World War one, John Keegan talks about the stalemates of World War one, the technology of World War II, just John the advent of radar al- alone was or, or, or for that matter penicillin is being extraordinary. Within all the synthesis of the Council on Foreign Relations, what do we underestimate? about the technology now. Is nations clash? What's the the present thing you're studying about our modern technology?
3: Well, it's a couple of things. So one of them is um, the um, the the growth and the implications of the growth of sort of auto- lethal autonomous weapons systems. Um, you know, we spoke you spoke about uh, technological advance and and obviously and the impact of that taking people by surprise, right? The, exactly. The, the lethality yeah. during trench warfare making it impossible to have the sort of wars of movement. But then of course then the invention of sort of Cavalry in the sense of tanks uh, in in the Second World War wars of movement, etc. What what we've really gotten into now is a degree of sort of remote control, almost video game warfare, in which uh, increasingly, as robotics gets more advanced, many of these things are going to be and already are. you see it with drone technology being outsourced to sort of, in a sense, uh, terminal jockeys in Nebraska, for instance, but, but being but able don't, to don't have reality. That, that
0: is too clinical and too surgical and avoids the human mm-hmm. condition.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, in in two ways. One of them is it certainly um, creates a situation where um, there are major hazards in terms of who's making those lethal decisions, but it's going to become even more of a problem, uh, this distancing, when. these weapon systems are actually able to make those decisions on their own, and more broadly, the uh, artificial intelligence revolution is also another um, it, it is it is creating huge problems for um, the future of warfare because you have situations where um, you know the the it, 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 as it's been described that if that if a country like China, which is competing all out. Uh, to try to dominate artificial intelligence ends up getting only a few months' advantage. That could be the equivalent of having an entire revolution in military affairs that the United States falls behind. I'm
1: going to ask you a very big question, and I, and I imagine you won't have a definitive answer, but I do wonder, are we witnessing an emerging Cold War between the United States and China?
3: I think we are. I don't think we're, it's going to be necessarily a, a shooting war. Um, uh, the China and the United States are definitely in one of those sort of hegemonic transitions as they're sometimes called in the academy. But basically, one, power is, one there's a rising power and then there's a, a power that's declining. Not, not in absolute terms, but in relative terms. And the question is, can they accommodate one another? Um, unlike the cold, there, there's a few differences between the United States and China and the United States versus the old Soviet Union. But one of the biggest ones is that this is by and large not really an ideological contest. It, there, That's there was interesting. A, there was an abs, it, you know, but it's a much more of a traditional great power contest. It's a little bit more like, you know, the Anglo, Anglo-German antagonism a hundred years ago, right? That led to the uh, help lead to the First World War. What you have with, with respect to U.S. and China is you don't really have you know, ex, a desire for territorial aggrandizement, right? It, with the exception of, you know, the South China Sea and a few, and, and Taiwan. You don't really have a territorial dispute. What you do have um, is uh, is is the Chinese desire to dismantle the U.S. alliance system in, in Asia and get the United States to be much more offshore than it is. But the good news is that this is not going to be a you know, 360-degree effort to try to pick up client states around the world and try to win them over to ideologies. Because the, the, the Chinese Communist Party, despite its name, has one ideology, and that is making money to keep its population happy.
1: That was great.
0: It was. It was fantastic. Can he come back? Yes, he can come Why back. Why has
1: he not been here before? <laughs> I don't know.
0: We do, you know, we do this a lot. I had an extremely uh, wonderful interview the day of Normandy, the day President yeah. Obama visited uh, Normandy, uh, with, um, uh, the name escapes you right now, he's written a fabulous three volumes on World War II at Dawn's Last Light and, and others. Oh, and Rick Atkinson. Rick Atkinson, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Rick Atkinson yeah. and I talking about Normandy. And this is what we try to do on surveillance. John Tucker and John Farrow and I and Pim Fox, Francine Lacroix, we're living this every day. Talk to people that actually know what they're talking about.
1: Uh, this morning, As was we do was Stuart, Stuart Patrick, Patrick yeah. CFR Senior Fellow in Global Governance and Director you know, of the International Institutions and global governance program
0: There is also velocity to the debate Is it easy as a media person? I can say it's Goldman versus Morgan Stanley, which makes for, you know, it's fun and all that. But the basic idea is the Fed on a path to many rate increases. And then a crew that has said, and in the case of Alan Zetner of Morgan Stanley, has said early, wait a minute. There will be a moment of data dependency where the Fed will pause. We get an update on this Friday with Ellen Zentner of economics at Morgan Stanley as well. To go into your weekend note as you publish for Monday, you're going to reaffirm caution about the Fed's path.
4: Yeah, so I think uh, what we do know is they're definitely going to hike some more. Um, But I'm glad that you mentioned the data dependency because that is something that Chair Powell's been very clear on, right? If anyone's been data dependent, um, it's this Fed, and they're gonna be even more data dependent than in the past. And so what that means is that the shape of growth next year is gonna matter greatly to how far they go with rates. And especially as they move toward uh, John Williams of the New York Fed, as you know, talked about his third phase of monetary policy making, which is managing policy around neutral. So that's real true data dependency, knowing as the data comes in, as as, uh, Rich Clarida, the new vice chair, put it, uh, the data, the incoming data will tell them where neutral is as it moves around. You manage policy around that.
0: Two frontline monetary wonks there in Williams and Clarida. That's not Chairman Powell. I want to posit an idea, and I want you to discuss it. This is a chairman driven to take the crystal ball-itis away yes you, he, I mean th- uh, clearly that's the pattern yeah where is that pattern going six meetings out
4: so Chair Powell did make it clear, starting with Jackson Hole, really, that uh, throwing out, uh, throwing rules-based policymaking out the window, even getting his pal Williams on board with him, saying, look, even though my name is on the labach williams model, I don't necessarily subscribe to it. So he's really been pushing his weight around at the Fed, trying to get the uh, hundreds of PhD economists at the Fed to eat some humble pie, so to speak, and say, look, there's not a lot of precision um, in the forecasting that we do, and we need to recognize that. And so that fits in with that data dependency, just letting the data tell you rather than being on some yeah. clear path. Now, I do find it... uh, So, Pal, I believe he's been a really great communicator, and the market understands him and reacts very well to his communications. He has made one misstep, though. What is that? And that was when he said, we are far from neutral. Because if you give a speech at Jackson Hole and say, we don't know where our star is, it's like guiding by the stars, and let's be clear that there's not a lot of precision in these things, then how do you know how far from neutral you are? I think that's the only only communication he's done where i would say he probably could have framed that in a different way and i think clarida did a good job on the back of that saying look it's just about the incoming data guided
0: by the stars you remind me of contiki and they're trying to figure out which i can't remember which way they went in the pacific but they went west to east or east they got lost they got lost okay (laughs) that's the big risk out here is we're guided by the stars can't we just be guided by jobs and wage growth in like like the Timberlake School of Georgia and just wait to see what the data is? Why can't we do that?
4: Well, that and I think that's what this Fed is gonna do. But I mean, what you've got is, uh, you know, based on our GDP tracking in the fourth quarter, 2.8%, we're gonna come in at 3.1% GDP growth this year. That's right in the pocket of the Fed's expectation. Okay. You've got growth in the first quarter of next year that's gonna be boosted by a record high tax refund season. So that's certainly not gonna have something in the data telling the Fed that they need to stop or that mm-hmm. they are at at or have gone past right. neutral. They'll hike in June as well. But we believe that by the time they're going into that September meeting, the shape of growth is gonna matter a good deal and GDP is gonna be tracking low and most likely okay. much lower than potential. What, and what, that will tell them we need to pause Stan here. Stan
0: Collender, publishing in Forbes, one of our great fiscal experts, he says it's two miserable years. If we get an Ellen Zentner GDP what does that do to our deficit vectors? And the answer is they, worse, they get worser. Right? Well, they're, 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 right? that, all, that's, that's, that's they're already
4: worse, for. right? Because tax cuts do not pay for themselves. And so revenue is dropping at a time when the economy is growing at its fastest pace. Uh, and so when the economy slows, it only means deficit, deficits get uh, even worse. Uh, and so staring trillion-dollar deficits, deficits in the face, it means don't count on st- on another round of stimulus anytime soon. And in fact, be, uh, outside of just automatic stabilizers that kick in whenever yeah, we go into yeah, a downturn, yeah. there's not a whole lot else I, the fiscal government can do.
0: I would point out that John Taylor out at Stanford makes a big deal about the efficacy of. Automatic stabilizers, as well. Um, Ellen, if we look at the PPI data today, you're too young to remember when PPI was gospel. Everybody just stopped. To
5: you're looking out. at Ellen or me.
0: <laughs> no, I'm looking at Ms. Zentner. Oh, okay. You and I remember PPI crystal clear. And then it's drifted this away over 20 Flattery. years. If you don't no, recognize this, it, this is Thomas Flattery. Is,
4: yeah, you really have is,
5: to.
0: Look, I got to go see a star is born this weekend. Please leave me alone. I mean, I'm getting major heat. And I'm, I'm culturally deficient because I haven't seen Bradley Cooper be Bradley Cooper. Ellen, we've got PPI. It's coming back. Should I care about business inflation? Does it really matter like it mattered long ago and far away? Uh, Well,
4: it does matter because margins are getting squeezed, input costs are rising, um, tariffs are going to uh, worsen that. Part of this is just from natural, organic tightening in the economy. And it's something that tends to happen as you move later into the business cycle and interest rates are rising. Uh, And so businesses have to uh, you know they have a couple of choices when margins get squeezed. You can either uh, invest more, do some capital deepening, that drives productivity, productivity drives profits, and it keeps your labor mm-hmm. share of costs the same. Uh, you can pass on the cost to the consumer, but then you take the chance of dealing with the drop in aggregate demand because prices have gone up. Uh, so you take the hit on the, the top line, or on margins, or the dreaded third option is that you control labor costs, which leads to softening in job growth, uh, possibly even job shedding. Jobs. We're not at that point yet, but that's how a cycle typically plays out. And it's something that we need to watch.
0: Ellen Center, thank you so much with Morgan Stanley this morning. And again, caution on three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Fed rate that rises. 100th anniversary of World War 1 we are honored to bring you the author of Presidents of War the epic story from 1807 to modern times the historian Michael Beschloss Michael it is a path from Edmund Randolph to the senator from Alabama it is the attorney general always fractious And there's that delicate and historical independence of justice from 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Describe that modern independence of the Justice Department. Well,
5: we've always assumed that even presidents who can be pretty partisan have attorneys general who uh, are different from that. And there's a layer of separation. And I would tend to be pretty critical of the new appointment of Matt Whitaker as the acting attorney general, because this is someone who has not only been a partisan, and attorneys general can set aside partisan tasks. That's not as worrying, but this is someone who's coming in with an attitude on the Mueller investigation where he has written and said that he thinks that this illegitimate, should be defunded, and essentially stopped, and very hard to escape the conclusion that the reason that he was put there is essentially right. to shut down Mueller. And that's something that we don't normally see in presidential history, and usually when presidents try it, doesn't end very well
0: for if, them. If I speak to you, or Doris Carnes Goodwin, or James McPherson, it, the, the phrase is so trite, and I speak as an amateur. Is this a constitutional crisis? Are we at that point, or does that await us in the future?
5: Uh, I think if, if Whitaker, as attorney general, shuts down Robert Mueller, and we cannot see that report. And remember that Rudy Giuliani has talked about the possibility that President Trump would use executive privilege to make sure that all or some of whatever report Mueller submits is kept away from public eyes. I think that's going to initiate a constitutional crisis. And the other element of this is that, you know, it might then go to the Supreme Court, and you have a Supreme Court now where President Trump has appointed two of those justices, the fifth, Brett Kavanaugh fine man man in many respects, but this is someone who, by the time of his confirmation, got very close to this president in a way that you normally don't see with justices. So I think one question one would have to ask is if Brett Kavanaugh will feel that he is in a position to call this one way or another without considering whatever relationship he has had with President Trump and his people.
3: Michael Beschloss, maybe to combine history and current events, mention immigration policy. Wonder if you could speak about immigration, refugees, and the changes in national borders as a result of World War One and whether we have improved at all in dealing with these challenges.
5: Yeah, well this has been an issue as as you know, Pim that goes all the way through American history, immigration, you know, back and forth. And after World War one we had you know huge changes in immigration policy in the 1920s then it came up at, at the time of the fact this is this week this is the anniversary the 80th anniversary of crystal night the pogrom against the jews of germany that led many of them to seek refuge in the western hemisphere at the same time you know it's hard to think of a time that a president has use this issue in a political way, as President Trump did during the last weeks of the last campaign, Uh, it always creates controversy. Uh, Lyndon Johnson signed an immigration bill in 1965 that opened the doors to a lot of the immigration that we've seen over the last half century. That was controversial, but not of the order that we have seen in recent years.
3: Based on your reading of history and your analysis, do you believe that the factors that contributed to the First World War are present today?
5: I think they certainly are. And, and the biggest and most dangerous omen is you have both, I know, read The Guns of August by Barbara Tuckman, which talks about how World War I came. And the big lesson of that book is that wars like this can start by accident, you know, by miscommunications and by accidents and so forth by people who did not even intend to go to war. A lot of things are happening right now that unless we've got wisdom and judgment from our leaders, beginning with the president of the United States, this could happen again. And unfortunately, we're now operating in a world of nuclear weapons, which was not happening a century ago.
0: Michael Beschloss, we have this phrase progressive, which I believe is new talk for liberal Right. what did the liberals learn in this election what did the liberals learn about the certitude of being out of power and being liberal and if you really want to win you got to move to the middle were any scoop jackson lessons made there
5: uh i don't think so i mean for instance at the time that bill clinton uh, ran in 1992 i would say that the dominant number of democrats felt this is a fairly conservative time and if democrats want to win they're going to have to become what clinton called new democrats and move to the middle i mean clinton was more centrist than any democrat in years was before they began using the word progressive and they really avoided as you well remember using the word liberal because it was an epithet now i would say say there's going to be a controversy within the democratic party that we will really see in the presidential primaries of 2020, which is, and you know what it is, you know, on one side you'll have strong progressives say the only way you can win the presidency back and win Congress mm-hmm. fully back is if you have strong views uh, and you go hard left and you bring out your voters, and then the old Demo- new Democrat people who will say that's going to alienate a lot of people. You've got to move to the middle. That's where the votes are. That's what Richard Nixon used to say. I don't think within the Democratic Party, either of those views is dominant. So we are probably going to see a battle royal in less than two well, years.
0: Thank you so much, Michael Beschloss, uh, generous amount of time today. The book is Presidents of War, the Epic Story from 1807 to Modern Times. And what's so cool about this book, folks, it was brought out a number of uh, months ago, and it was important then. And with the news flow that we've been seeing, uh, it becomes uh, important. The American Historian. Tom Hanks says of uh, Michael's book, once again, Beschloss captures our presidents in terms both historic and human as well. Presidents of war, can't say enough uh, about it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.